Good morning, everyone. Sanbonani, Moeni, Huemora, Dumela. Hello, how's it? <laughs> Have you ever wondered where greetings came from? I mean, why do we even greet people? Why don't we just start talking about what we start talk- want to talk to them about? Um, I think we all know that recognizing someone's presence is a very important part of communication. But I have looked at a bunch of the original translations for some of the greetings from around the world, and I want to share some of those with you. Um, the origin of hello is the French word hola, which roughly means whoa there, hola. <laughs> Apparently that's where, it's, where it all started. It's the same with any other word that sounds similar. So hello, or hola, hola, all those sorts of things. The French chose to use bonjour, which literally translates to good day. And there's lots of languages around the world that um, that say the same, kind of use that same thing. So guten tag in, in German, godach in Danish, bon dia in Portuguese, buongiorno. They all kind of mean a good day. The literal meaning of konnichiwa in Japanese is today is. And you get to kind of finish the sentence, I guess. Ciao in Italian is used as both hello and goodbye. And uh, the word actually comes from a Venetian phrase that literally means I am your slave. But they meant it as at your service. So you greet someone saying at your service, which is kind of cool. Namaste um, literally translates to I bow to you. Shalom is also used for hello and goodbye. And many people know it to mean peace. But uh, shalom literally means wholeness, health, peace, tranquility, rest, prosperity, perfection, harmony. It's so much more than just peace. And so when you say shalom, you're wishing that person a laugh with everything that shalom means, which is really great. The Zulu greeting, saubona, means we see you. And so the other person would respond, yeah, but saubona, I see you too. And uh, kind of by letting you know, you know that you see them, you're inviting that person into your life. You're kind of saying, I want to, I want to see, I want to witness your life. I want to be involved in your life, which is so great. And so here we are this morning. We're starting a series on relationships and more specifically on prejudice. And we've called the series Saubona, I See You. Really believe that uh, one of the antidotes to prejudice is to really see people. And so isn't that what it's all about? We want to give a bit of context to why this is important. I mean, why are we spending a bunch of weeks on the topic of prejudice? Well, the gospel is not just a vertical relationship, a relationship with me and God. But, I mean, it is a vertical relationship, but it changes our horizontal relationships. Every relationship with other people. What went wrong in the Garden of Eden didn't just break our relationship with God, but it broke our relationships with one another as well. And so Jesus didn't only come to fix our relationship with God, but also our relationships with other people. It's part of the gospel. And getting rid of prejudice is a gospel issue. If you think about it, prejudice stops us from seeing the image of God in others. We see their problem before we see their person. All people are made in the image of God, which means that all people have inherent value. They're valuable simply because they're made in the image of God. But what prejudice does is it ascribes value to people, and it kind of ranks people. Scripture tells us there's no hierarchy in humankind. There's no first class and second class when it comes to people. We're just all people made in the image of God. We're just all people that Jesus died for. So prejudice is a gospel issue. Also, prejudice is a massive hindrance to being like Jesus. Now, if I'm following Jesus, I can't treat people as less than. 
because Jesus didn't treat people as less than. And prejudice makes us treat people as less than. Jesus didn't die for the Jews only. He died for the sins of all. And so prejudice is a hindrance in being like Jesus. Prejudice also stops us from obeying the commands of Jesus. You can't love your neighbor as much as you love yourself when your heart is full of prejudice. And fourthly, I believe that prejudice will keep us from being a church that impacts our community and the world. And I really believe that God wants us to be a church that impacts our community and the world. Sal Borna, I see you. We want to invite you this morning on a journey towards really seeing people. Invite you on a journey to participate in other people's lives with deep witnessing. And we really believe that this is something that God has brought us to. We believe that it's something that he wants to speak to us about. And so I want to invite you on this journey and let's listen to what he has to say. Let's take a few moments to pray. God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you that you speak to us. And so we pray, God, right now that you would speak, that you would give us hearts to hear you and ears to listen to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen to what you want to say to us rather than what we want to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is prejudice? Well, prejudice comes from the word prejudgment. So it's to judge something before you have all the information. It's an unjustified negative attitude towards an individual or a group. You can be prejudiced about any group of people. You might have something against people who follow a certain diet, for instance. You may be prejudiced against vegans or against meat eaters. You may have something against people who accessorize a certain way. So you might see somebody with piercings or tattoos and you judge them before you even get to know them. You can be prejudiced about age, class, language, sexual orientation, ability, ethnicity, immigration status, gender, race, family situation, religion, political belief, marital status, place of origin. I mean, I was born in Joburg. I'm, I'm sure someone has an opinion about that. A prejudice is an attitude that you hold. Different to discrimination, which is an action or behavior. So discrimination is the unequal treatment of different groups of people. So just to take note that you can be prejudiced, which is an attitude or belief, without necessarily showing discrimination, which is an action. I would hazard a guess that we are all prejudiced to some extent. And if I'm right in that, how ironic would that be that a thing that by nature separates and isolates people, prejudice separates and isolates people, is something that we all have in common. It's kind of cool, actually. But I would guess that all of us have some form of prejudice where we group people or we think that some people are better than another group of people. So for clarity's sake, I'm not saying that I think we all discriminate, which is an action. I'm saying that I think that we are all prejudiced in some way, which is an attitude. However, there is a very fine line between attitude and action. And there is a very real chance that we may act in a specific way due to prejudices that we aren't even aware exist. Prejudices that we might not see in ourselves. It kind of reminds me of Jeremiah 17 verse 9. It reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We have five root emotions. Enjoyment, sadness, fear, anger, 
and disgust. So as human beings, we have those five root emotions. I want to take a few moments to just tell you a story about Jacques, our youth pastor. He, he's been working at our church for four years now, and uh, many of you will know him. But the first year Jacques was here, when it came to Easter time, we asked for Jacques to take on the role of Jesus at our Tenebrae service, which is the service that we do on Thursday night before Good Friday. And it was a very meaningful service. Everyone who was there took a grape, and as they held it in their hands, they repented of a sin that they allowed that grape to represent. And then they went and they placed their grape in a bowl in front of Jesus. And the grapes were squashed and sieved into the, the communion chalice. It was a very meaningful moment. Now, we didn't know as much about Jacques then as we do now. Um, we now know that Jacques is quite a germaphobe. So, for example, he won't drink out of the same can or glass as someone that's not in his family. <laughs> He's not a big fan of eating or drinking things that anyone else has touched, in fact. Now, when Jacques agreed to this role at the Tenebrae service, he was very aware that he would hold the cup. But Jacques had no idea that he was going to drink from it. Of everyone else's grapes that they had held and touched and that someone else a, a stranger quite frankly to Jacques had squashed with their hands <laughs> okay, I want you to guess which emotion Jacques was feeling at that time <laughs> I mean he probably was feeling a lot of them anger fear you know but I think it was mostly disgust now disgust an emotion you might think that's a bit strange you know you feel nauseous or you feel icky but isn't that all it is well, Jacques will tell you that disgust is an emotion that he carried with him for weeks after that experience. <laughs> but if you think about it, you also feel disgusted when someone treats someone else badly or when you hear of a story of corruption or abuse or when you witness dishonesty. It's an emotion that we all feel. My cousin Theron runs a company called Margro that deals with emotional intelligence and he's allowed me to use some of their research around disgust for the sermon. I mean, why would we be wanting to speak about disgust? Well, I think that prejudice finds its root in the emotion of disgust. I think that prejudice finds its root in the emotion of disgust. Now, biologically speaking, disgust is a protection mechanism. So the fact that we feel nauseous at the smell of food that's rotten kind of proves the point. Our body is saying, don't eat that, and it's protecting us from getting sick. It's protection from a threat of contamination. Culturally speaking, disgust is also a way of protecting ourselves, protecting our worldviews or our beliefs or things that kind of hold us together as a group or a family when they're things that challenge our way of life, we often feel disgust towards another way of doing things or another belief system, whatever is ever to us. And it's to protect us from contamination of the other. Religious beliefs are a good example of this. A few weeks back, I was cooking bacon and a friend of a different religion that prohibits eating pork had to move away from where I was because she said the smell was making her feel sick. Now, to me, there's nothing better than the smell of bacon. But how interesting that the same smell disgusted her emotionally and physiologically. 
it's the protection from a threat of contamination. She's protecting her belief that pork is wrong to eat. You know, we kind of make up these rules in, in the groups that we're in. This is who we are. This is what we do and what we don't do. This is what we eat and what we don't eat. And often it leads to disgust towards what is other than your belief. Disgust is an, a natural emotion, but what we find disgusting is learned from our context. You know, we learn to be disgusted by eating sand or picking our noses. This is not something that we disgusted by as children, but it protects us as it helps us to kind of become socially acceptable adults, right? So again, I think that prejudice finds its root in disgust. Prejudice is felt when we are trying to protect ourselves from contamination, protect ourselves from what's different to us, from what we don't understand. And what we are prejudiced against is learnt from our context. We may not like the word disgust or to use the word disgust. It sounds so hardcore to use that about a person. We may use words like dislike or have an aversion to, but these are all subcategories of disgust. Prejudice stems from one of our primary emotions, which again leads me to believe that it's something that we all share. Prejudice is something we all have in common. South Africa is definitely not the only place that struggles with prejudice. Prejudice not owned by a certain part of the world. It is seen all over the world. The recent mosque attacks in New Zealand, police shootings in the U.S., the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, apartheid, wars all around the world. Prejudice is not specific to a certain part of the world. Prejudice is also not something new. If we look back, even in the Bible, all the way back to Cain and Abel, the Samaritans versus the Jews, men versus women, Philistines versus the Jews, the Jews versus the Greeks, the Jews versus the Gentiles. It frankly seems like the Jews didn't get on, on with anyone. What does the Bible say about prejudice? Well, I'm going to give you a crash course. Next week, Jono will be diving into this in greater depth. Revelation if we start right at the end of the Bible, gives us a picture of, of what heaven will be like. It's pretty much a description of perfection. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 1 Corinthians 12, We were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. Romans 10, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Colossians 3, Anyone who does wrong will be paid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. 1 Timothy 5, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. 1 John 2, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. 1 Samuel 16, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. John 7, Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Does the Bible speak about prejudice? Well, in a nutshell, yes, a lot. How did Jesus deal with prejudice as he saw it? You know, Jesus lived on earth during a time when it seemed to be acceptable to be overtly prejudiced. One of my favorite examples is found in John chapter 4 where we come across Jesus who's walking with his disciples and he stopped for a while by a well in Samaria. Jesus sent his disciples off to buy some food 
And while they were gone, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus asks her to draw some water for him. And she's shocked. She realizes that he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, Jesus shouldn't even be speaking to her. But through this encounter, Jesus ministers to her. He shares with her about the living water that only he can offer. And she goes off and tells her whole town about Jesus, and she's changed. I encourage you to go and read that encounter in John chapter 4. In Scripture, we see a Jesus who is completely countercultural. He definitely did not go with the norm of the day. Rather, he showed us a different standard to live by. He interacted with people who made other people question him. You know, people who made him unclean. Prostitutes and tax collectors, he healed lepers. In this story, he talks with a woman, a Samaritan woman, if that's not bad enough, and a questionable Samaritan woman, to make it even worse, she had to come and draw water in the middle of the day when no one else was there, when all the other women came in the morning. You know, she was surprised he was talking to her. His, his disciples were surprised that he was talking to her. It, it was unacceptable behavior for that time and that culture. To me, it often seems like Jesus went out of his way to encounter these people. It's as if he was trying to teach a lesson to those around him and teach us a lesson, kind of making the statement, just because this is how it is, doesn't mean how it is, is right. Jesus set the most perfect example of impartiality. I mean, you even think of the very incarnation of Jesus, which speaks to this. The eternal son of God becomes flesh and he dwells among us. And when that happened, he crossed this infinite chasm from the infinite to the finite, from immortality to mortality. He left moral perfection to live among moral corruption. But Jesus did not despise us. He came to us. He loved us. He died in our place to give us life. And he did all of this when we were more other to him than anyone has ever been other to us. You see, just because prejudice is something we all have doesn't mean it's fine. So can it change? I mean, is there hope? If prejudice has been around forever, it's something that's basic to all of us. You know, culture theory suggests we're just this product of a hateful and prejudiced system. Well, Nelson Mandela said no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. You think about it, none of us pop out of the womb hating a specific group of people. He says people must learn to hate. And he goes on to say, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. We're made in the image of God. We are made in the image of love. Of course love comes more naturally to the human heart. So can we change? And if so, how? I want to go back to our topic of disgust. We said we often struggle with things that disgust us about people or other cultures or other genders, other classes. But it is possible to suspend our disgust. What I mean by that is to put it on hold so that we can gather more information. How do I know this? Well, if we bring it back to food again, um, I googled weirdest things to eat in the world. And amongst chocolate-covered locusts in Israel and crispy tarantulas in Cambodia, 
I found one on the list that I was most disgusted by was jellied moose nose. Oh, it gets me every time. Look at that. <laughs> it's eaten in Canada. <laughs> now, I may think it's strange and frankly quite disgusting to eat jellied moose nose. But the truth is that Canada is still populated. <laughs> they didn't all die. So eating moose nose is not dangerous to me. I don't need my disgust to protect me from contamination. So if I were to try it, and in that sense, suspend my disgust, put it on pause, I may come to like it. <laughs> or at the very least, I will know that I definitely don't. <laughs> Is it not similar with our prejudices? What if I could suspend my disgust, put it on pause, and spend some time with whoever those people are. You know, experience something different. Experience some other way of doing things. What if? Well, I may find relationship. I may realize that it wasn't a matter of one of us being right and the other one being wrong. I may get rid of my fears. I may get rid of my prejudices, I may find freedom, and I may find fullness, and I may see a different side of God. William Miller, in his book, The Anatomy of Disgust, makes this very interesting point, that relationship or intimacy changes what we consider disgusting. I think the prime example is how parents are able to change nappies with relative ease, <laughs> Or if you think about when you care for a sick family member, your levels of disgust are reduced. And it helps us to see that intimacy or relationship reduces disgust. A personal example I have of this, uh, Barry and I have an adopted daughter. And when she first came to live with us, uh, she was six months old. And to be completely vulnerable with you right now, I felt a bit grossed out when I was changing her nappies in a way that I hadn't felt with my biological children. I mean, I struggled with the fact that I even felt this way. I felt guilty about it. It didn't take long for it to change. You know what? Now I'm one of those gross moms that wipes her snot away with my hand exactly like I do my other kids. What was the difference? Well, it was intimacy. It was relationship. As we got to know her more, as we grew to love her more, as we came to adore her, it all changed and it didn't take long. The disgust completely disappeared. But we have to lean in. We can suspend our feeling of disgust. And if we can move towards the other with an appropriate level of intimacy, we are left with improved relationships and reduced disgust. It is a complete win-win, but we have to lean in. We need to really see people, not a title or a group. We need to see them from the inside, the way God sees them. We need to see the image of God in them. I want you to watch something for a few moments and right up front I'm going to ask some of you to suspend your disgust. It's an advert for Heineken, which some of you might find offensive. Um, 
The fact that it's an advert for Heineken is completely not the point here. They just happen to have a really good marketing department. I want to ask you to watch this social experiment carefully. If you missed that, that was all people with really strong opinions, really strong opposing opinions on issues that were paired up. And they spent some time getting to know each other before, before they realized that they were standing alongside someone who was completely opposed to their view on that issue. And at the end, all of them chose to engage with the other person, with the other person, and converse. They saw the person first. And they found similarities. Some of them even found relationship. Saul Borner, I see you. Do you see the person or just what is on their t-shirt? We can be taught to love. And I believe that love himself wants to teach us. Is it possible to change? Of course it is. Speak to previous Nazis. Speak to widows from the Rwandan genocide. If they escaped hate and prejudice, of course we can too. We want to encourage you to start with one person. Develop one new transformational relationship with someone who's different from you. By transformational relationship, we mean a relationship where you and the other person are both transformed. And with someone different, we mean a different religion, a different race, a different generation, different orientation, a different economic status, someone who's markedly different to you. And lean in and see them, move towards them. It will take work. It may be difficult. It may be awkward, but it will be worth it. I want to end today's service with one more story and and one question. Some of you may remember a, a little girl who was in a car accident in December last year, Kiara Mungavin. She's the daughter of a pastor in Durban North. And I've been following her mom, Jackie's blog, uh, throughout that whole process and, and in the months following. Uh, she was miraculously healed and uh, it really is a, a, an awesome story if you want to go and, and take a look at that. But I want to read something from a blog post that I read a few months ago that really jumped out at me and I haven't been able to forget it. Jackie writes, I think it was about day five after the accident when it seemed likely that Kiara would remain asleep for her life on earth. Of course, we'd been praying all along, but someone set a time and said, pray now, and we came. The prayers were bold. Our faith, our faith was strengthened by each other's presence. And just as we were winding to a close, one voice whispered, Talita kum. Talita kum. The words of Jesus when calling a young girl, just Kiara's age, to rise from the dead. Little girl, rise up. I and then others caught hold of the whisper and repeated the words, Talita kum. And then louder, Talita kum. In the name of Jesus, who has made all things possible, rise up, little girl, rise up. I was in Cape Town recently at a ladies' conference. This is about six months later. And a woman I didn't know began telling me of a prophetic vision she had around that little girl in Durban. It was clear that she had no idea I was Kiara's mother and and not many other specifics of our story. She told me that God had showed her that Kiara was a prophetic picture of the church that God was calling the Church of South Africa to rise up with the words Talita Kum, 
She explained that she believed that just as Kiara had been miraculously woken up and was walking into the full measure of healing, so too was God calling the church to wake up, to be healed from past brokenness, and to walk into the fullness of health. Imagine with me, Westville Baptist, is God not calling us to wake up and to be healed from past brokenness and to walk into fullness of health? I believe the world needs to change. I believe that South Africa needs to change. We've been wounded and broken by prejudice more so than many other places in the world, and that needs to change. And I believe that the church needs to lead in this. Now, why can't a little church in a random suburb called Westville take the lead in that? What is stopping God from using us to lead our country even in how to do life together? What is stopping us from being a church that wakes up and calls others to wake up and to be healed from past brokenness? Why can't we be an example of the unity that God intended, that shalom, those horizontal relationships that are perfect. Why can't we be an example of that to the world? Well, we can, but we need to ask love to teach us to love. We need to ask Jesus to teach us to love, and we need to lean in. We need to move towards those who are other than us. We need to suspend our disgust. We need to build relationships with people different from us. We need to live out the image of God to those around us. And we need to see the image of God in those around us. And so I have a question for you this morning. Are you on board? I mean, I mentioned at the beginning that this is a journey. We're inviting you on this journey that we believe God is leading us on. I mean, the journey is just four weeks here on Sundays. It's six weeks in life groups. But in reality, it's going to be a lot longer than that. Are you on board? Will you commit to listen to God over this time? Perhaps join a life group, even just for this series. Will you commit to work out what your prejudices are? And commit to engage in this process to be willing to have some tough and uncomfortable conversations. To be willing to perhaps be wrong. And to admit that. To be open to becoming a better version of yourself. To becoming more like Jesus. Are you on board? Hope so. And let me say to any of you, if this is particularly hard for you, let's engage. Let's talk about it. Don't just jump off the train. Let's engage. We believe that it starts in the heart. It starts in our hearts. And we need to say to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. So I'm going to invite you to take some time right now before God. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Are you on board? And if you're not, maybe ask God to help you get willing to be on board. So take some time right now. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this beautiful country that you've placed us in. We thank you for the fact that we are here, situated where we are in 2019. And I believe that you have a plan for us for such a time as this. 
We pray, God, as you lead us on this journey, that we would follow where you want us to take, where, where you want to take us. That we would be obedient to you, that we would allow you to mold us and to speak to us and to change us. We're excited for where you are leading us, Lord. Use us, we pray, in this country, in this neighborhood. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, guys. You can stick around for some tea or coffee and some jellied moose nose. (laughs) Jokes, there's none out there (laughs) after the service. God bless and have a great week.